if I can encourage you and ask you to turn in your Bible to Judges chapter 17 and 18. And if you're going to use the Bible in front of you, you'll start on page 216, 217, and carry over into 218. Now, this morning, we're kind of starting a new section of Judges. And really, as we come to Though we have five more chapters to cover. We're going to cover two chapters today, three chapters next week. These are new chapters. They're in essence really, today we're starting the conclusion of Judges, but it's a new section. One sense it's a new section because ever since Judges 3, every time we've looked at a chapter in Judges, we've either talked about a judge or the cycle of Judges or really how both of those intertwined and combined. But from this point on, there's going to be no mention of a judge and there's going to be no Judges cycle. The cycle of Judges in that sense is done. Instead, what we're going to have today and then next Sunday are really sort of snapshots into the lives of the people of Israel, into the lives of the people who did the evil that kept Israel in the bondage. I guess it set up the cycle. We don't know exactly when these events occurred. It's, they're at the end of the book, yes, but they may have been at any time. But they're there. They're, this is why things were bad. Now, if you're following along, we said this was new and odd. That's kind of the new part, but there's some oddness to this whole story. And as I try to think through this oddness in this chapter, this, this chapter and the next chapter, there were odd things to me. Let me unpack that a little bit, but let me do that by asking you a question first, okay? Something for you to keep in mind. What does it mean to be free? I want you to think about that this morning. What does it mean to be free? Now, as you consider your answer, I, I want to get a little nerdy for a second and just tell you about a literary feature of Judges, okay? Judges 17 to Judges 21 are considered a unit, and the reason they're considered a unit is because there's a verse very early in Judges 17 that sounds exactly like a verse at the end of Judges 21. Let me read those two verses for you so you kind of get it and you can be thinking, what about freedom? They are somewhat connected. Judges 17, 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now let me ask you, the, ask you this question. Does the expression right in his own eyes, does that sound to you a little bit like freedom? Now, before you answer that question, let me ask another thing or point out another thing, and that is to tell you that the idea of that expression in, in Judges, right in his own eyes, is really an expression that has an attitude behind it, and the attitude behind it is, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it because I know what's right. I'll do what I want to do when I want to do it because I know what's right. I know what's best. Now, if I simply heard the words personally right in his own eyes, part of me would say that that sounds like freedom. Like I, right in my own eyes, I can do what I want to do. That sounds freeing. But then if I consider this attitude behind the expression, what it actually means, and then I look at the fact that scholars would tell us that that verse, those two verses that are basically the same verse are basically the theme of judges. That's what people did. They were trying to do what was right in their eyes. It's like they didn't really seem to experience freedom. 
It's like it sounds like it should give freedom, but it doesn't really deliver freedom. And that seemed odd to me. And then it got a little bit odder because that triggered a memory. See, a little over eight years ago, I was encouraged to read a book. And in one chapter of the book, the book decided to talk about what philosophers define freedom as. And I thought, that's weird. Like, I, I know, I'll be honest, I am really weak in philosophy, so this is going to be a really weak part of the sermon. But this is what philosophers will tell us about freedom. They'll tell us there's two kinds of freedom. And I'm thinking, no, there's freedom. There's not two kinds. But philosophers say, no, there's two kinds. The first kind is what they would call negative freedom. Now, I'm going to guess most of us wouldn't put the word freedom and a negative together, but philosophers do. And when they say negative freedom, what they are talking about is a freedom of choice without limits, a freedom of all constraints. Well, that sounds an awful lot like Judges 17.6. I can do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, because I know what's best. There are no restrictions on me. I can do it. But philosophers say that's negative freedom. Well, if there's a negative freedom and there's two kinds of freedom, you can kind of guess they would say the other kind of freedom is positive freedom. And philosophers would define positive freedom as a freedom to pursue a good aim. But when they say that, they also make clear that to pursue a good aim consists of finding the right liberating constraints or the right liberating restrictions so you can actually get to the freedom. And this is where it seemed odd to me because I'm thinking, what do philosophers know really about freedom? Because that idea of positive freedom, of freedom that's constrained or restricted in some ways, sounds an enormous amount like what the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, and in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Let me read those two verses. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So there's certain things I need to not have in my life. I can't have slavery in my life. There's a restriction, a constraint. Then verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. If you and I want to experience the freedom that God gives us in Jesus, the freedom to really live life, the freedom that Jesus alone offers us through us trusting him and his finished work and his death and his resurrection, if we want that freedom, the freedom Jesus offers us, we need constraints. We need those. In essence, we need banks so that we can float in the river of God's forgiveness, the river of God's freedom, the river of God's blessing. We need banks to hold that in. So really one of the bigger questions of life, if you and I say, hey, I want to live in freedom, I want freedom, then the question becomes, what are the constraints we need in our lives so we keep floating down that river. What are the things you and I need in our lives so we stay on freedom, so we do that? This morning, what I want us to do, looking at the account, and really it's one big account of Judges 17 and 18, and I'll be honest, the story is weird and odd, and quite honestly, most of the story is full of evil, I think there's two positive constraints, in essence, two banks 
that offer us a life of floating down the river of God's freedom that we can learn. Well, what are those? Constraint number one that you and I need, restriction number one, constraint number one that you and I need is we need to worship God God's way. That's a constraint we need in our life. We need to worship God God's way. Now, let me jump in to Judges 17 because it starts a weird, odd story to me. So let me read verses 1 to 5 of Judges 17. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod of the house and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Let me unpack that a little bit. Okay, what's going on here? Well, it seems that Micah stole his mother's life savings, okay? 1,100 pieces of silver was an enormous amount of money then, and he stole it from his mom. If you're wondering, that violates for sure commandment number five of the Ten Commandments, also number eight, and you could maybe make an argument that he also violated commandment number 10. He's really off to a good start here. Okay, now I think you're saying, hey, three out of ten, that, that's not five. Uh, he's not that bad. Well, okay, I'll give you that. Okay, he's got more commandments he could break. Then he hears his mom curse whoever it was that stole it. And he's like, that's me, and I don't want to have a curse on my life because he's really concerned about spiritual things. So probably out of fear... He says, hey, mom, I'm the one that took it. So what does she respond? Well, hey, I want you to be blessed by the Lord. That's really nice. I mean, I wish every time I did something stupid, did something sinful, people would want to bless me. Actually, really quickly, you guys did bless me last week. I showed you somebody gave me a Stretch Armstrong. What I didn't realize is I actually got two. So if you want to come to my office, we can each play with a Stretch Armstrong, okay? Okay. You've blessed me. Back to the notes. So here's the thing, though. To celebrate, not only does she bless him, she says, hey, I want to celebrate this. Well, that's wonderful. How does she celebrate? By saying, I want a carved image and a metal image. Well, now we're violating commandment number two. We're just adding them up as we go along. Now, to add more weirdness, more oddness to the story, she says, I want to dedicate all the money, but she only uses 200 of the 1,100. Where's number 900? Which means we probably have another issue with more commandments of the Ten Commandments because she's stealing again, sort of, in a way. The images get made, and then according to verse 5, Micah sets up his own worship place. 
Okay, when it says in verse 5, shrine, that actually is not one word in Hebrew. It's two words, which means house of God. He was setting up his own place of worship, which means he is now violating Deuteronomy chapter 12 and God's commands about worship. The story is actually going to get weirder in a sense. You see, a Levite is going to come wandering looking for a place to live. Now, stepping out of Judges just for a minute, we need to remember that God had given the Levites 48 cities throughout Israel to live. So a Levite wandering is literally not in line with Scripture. He is outside of God's will trying to find a place to live outside of where God said, here, I've provided for you. Verses 9 to 13, picking up the story again. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I, have a, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I can find a place, where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me as a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Well, Micah really is into worship. Okay? He really does, in a sense, want to worship. That's in the background of the story. He really wants to worship. And he's thinking, hey, since I've now got a Levite as a priest, this is going to be God's blessing on my life. God's really going to like this. Now, the writer of Judges does not explicitly say it, but you kind of get the sense that in writing these words, he's with, in the backdrop is that Micah is a mixed up, messed up guy. See, Micah is thinking that worship is all about getting God's blessing, getting God to prosper him. Not to give away the whole story, but you know what? Micah's not going to prosper. He's not. Why? Well, in part, he's not going to prosper because the point of worship is not about prospering. We don't worship to prosper. Why do we worship? Why does God call us to worship? God calls us to worship so we declare or ascribe to him the worth that he has, that he literally is the supreme. He is the one of supreme worth and glory only belongs to him. God alone is worthy. That's why we worship, to recognize, to affirm. We know who really matters. It's God and God alone. It's not about me doing things so that I prosper. Well, folks, I think we struggle when it comes to worship. We struggle with affirming and ascribing and declaring to God his incredible worth. See, Micah did. And to make it maybe more obvious, at the very beginning of the story, it said he lived in the hill country of Ephraim. Do you know what else is in Ephraim at that time? The tabernacle of God. The place he was supposed to go to worship and worship to God according to God's way. And he doesn't do that. He does his own thing. And it doesn't lead him to where he thinks he's wanted to go. 
Folks, if you and I want to experience the freedom that God offers us, we really want to enjoy that. We need to learn and grow in a way of moving beyond our struggle with worship and actually come to the place of truly worshiping God. And one of the things about God that I pray I never forget is that God is kind and gracious and good and God moves to help us do the things that we really should be doing. In essence, God helps us know how to ascribe worth to him, how to ascribe honor and glory to him. Really quickly, let me give you four things from the New Testament that we are pointed to. This helps us worship God. This would help me ascribe to God his worth. One, we should be, in that, we should be presenting ourselves or giving ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Okay, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 tells us that. Two, offering words of praise. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 describes that we should offer words of praise. Why do we gather and sing? So that sermons don't take an hour and a half? No. Because we are ascribing worth and praise to God. We need to do that. Another way to worship God, a third thing that gets added here is doing good and giving. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 16 talks about that. We do those things. Part of our lives are to be a life of worship and part of it is doing good. Part of it is giving. Okay, those are acts of worship, ascribing to God his worth. And then a fourth thing, number four we could do is folks, we do this by coming together. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 describe that. We need to come together to do these things so we worship God. If you and I want to enjoy the freedom that a person receives when he or she repents of her sins and trusts the Lord Jesus alone, we need to understand worship matters. Worship is not a, no, I don't really matter thing. No, it really matters. We need to do this. Let me step out of Judges just for a second and kind of ask, why does worshiping God matter when it comes to freedom? Like, why do we really need to worship God to experience freedom? I think Romans chapter 11, verse 36 might help us when it says this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The Apostle Paul is declaring very clearly that God the Father is the creator, he is the sustainer, and he is the point of life. And Paul does that to make it clear to us that guess what? Glory is his alone. Glory only belongs to God. It's really easy for us to ascribe glory to the wrong things. And I'm going to be very careful here because some of you are college football fans. But sometimes if you listen and you watch people's reaction to college football, you would think that our college football teams are worthy of all kinds of things. That's a tension for us. Now, I'm not 
maybe as big a college football fan, but I grew up and hockey was a really big deal. And it's wanting to ascribe to hockey teams this great thing. That's not what we need to do. We can easily do that. We can ascribe glory to the wrong things. But I think what Paul's trying to tell us, what the Bible's trying to tell us, is if you and I want to experience freedom, we need to know where glory is ascribed. And it's only ascribed to one, and it's ascribed to our God. If you and I want to experience freedom, one of the constraints or restrictions in our lives is we need to worship God. But we need to worship God God's way. Constraint number two. If we want to worship God his way, that's part of the constraint. The other constraint we need is we need to be obeying God in all things. The other restraint we need in our lives is obeying God in all things. Let me ask you a question. Do speed limits seem constrictive or constraining to you? I saw some elbows. I mean, I mean I'm not trying to be, I'm just asking, like, do you think that? See, now, I think as far back as I can remember, there has been in something inside me that has kind of made me think, you know what, rules are restrictive, rules are constraining. I, you know, like, I really want to know. Like, you know, you look at the speedometer of a car and it says it can go like 120 or 140 or 150. I'm like, can it? <laughs> I have an undergraduate degree in science. I mean, you got to test these things, right? My oldest brother, they were in Europe on the Autobahn. He rented some fancy car, and he's like, I said, so how fast did you go? Well, the Autobahn, they don't have speed limits. And he's like, well, I had it up to, you know, like basically he, he gave me the metric number. So about the equivalent of 135, he said, that, that felt pretty good. We can say, that's restrictive. I want to go to Omaha in an hour. No, I don't want to go to Omaha in an hour. I want to be in Omaha in 30 minutes. I'm not sure that my attitude that they're constrictive and restrictive is really the whole story. I want you to hear what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 40. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today. Why? Because God's a big meanie. No, what does it say? That it may what? Go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your little days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Moses is clear, folks. God's commandments are an expression of his love to bring God's blessing into our lives, to bring God's goodness so that our lives go well. In April of 2002, we visited my parents in Calgary. And as a part of our time there, my older brother offered to take uh, me and our three boys skiing McKelly wasn't included. She was like 10 months old. So she and Carrie got to stay home. But we were like going ski. Now, the boys had never skied before. But my older brother had been for years a ski instructor. So this was great. We were going to get free lessons. And then they'd learn how to ski and we'd have a great time. And they did. They had a great day. But 
being in the mountains and we didn't know we were going to do that so we didn't necessarily have all of the right clothing and so our youngest son TJ who was a month shy of six he was getting a little cold and his older brothers they wanted to go a little longer and so it's like you know can I do one last run daddy and you know my brother could take the other two and they could go and have a good time I'm like sure so we're at the top of the hill and you could see the 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 lodge down below and he said daddy is it okay if I just go straight? See, in his five-year-old mind, turning was restrictive. Now realize, and, and Carrie will remember this, everything at that point in TJ's life was about speed. Everything. Everything had to be as fast as possible. And I made the parental mistake of saying, well, I suppose... Now, realize I had grown, I had skied a long time, and for me, that run, not turning, would not have, I could have handled it. But I wasn't five. So the first little bit, he was doing fine. He was handling the speed. And then things changed. And as you might have anticipated by the way I'm telling this story, there was this big wipeout. After I kind of helped him collect himself back together and got snow out of everywhere, he looked at me and said these words, Daddy, I should have turned. <laughs> See, what seems restrictive may actually lead us to better outcomes. Judges chapter 18 and verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan were seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Way back on August 20th, when we started this series, we saw in Judges 1 that Dan had not taken possession of their inheritance. And the reason why was because of their disobedience. That's what's in the background of verse 1. Carrying on to verse 2. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and Eschatol, to spy out the land and explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. Dan wanted to find another place to live. And so when they arrived at Micah's, they find and meet this Levite priest, and they're like, hey, maybe he could pray for us and let us know where God would have us lead. Again, they're trying to do good things in a sense, but are they? Verse 6, realizing they were in disobedience, doing what they were doing. Verse 6, and the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Now, the five guys from Dan kind of interpreted that as saying, under the eye of the Lord, oh, God's good with us. We're going to go and do this. But more likely, those words meant that God is watching not to approve, but to render judgment. See, they were walking away from God. They were walking in the direction of disobedience. And as they searched, they did find what they thought was a sweet spot. And so they go back to the big tribe and they rally the tribe and say, hey, we should go and do this. Now, to be very clear at this point, the new place is way outside their inheritance, the inheritance that God had given them. They're walking away from what God had given them. Instead of literally being in the center of Israel, they are now removing themselves to the outer edge. 
The story picks up again, verses 18 to 20. They get going and they're going to go to this new place. They stop at Micah's house, verse 18. And when these men went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. The Levite turned priest got a better job offer and he's like, oh, let's go do this. This will be great. Now, let me be very clear. The Levite, again, was being disobedient. See, Levites were to serve the whole nation, not a tribe. Again, not obeying God. Now, as you might have guessed it, Micah was not exactly thrilled by this development, so he decides to get some people together and go after the army of Dan. Verse 23 to 25. And they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Micah had this grand plan of how he was going to prosper. And it clearly is not working out. You know, his words in verse 24, my gods that I have made, that should have been a huge warning to everyone that they were off the rails, that they were not doing right, that God, the true God, was not in this in any way, shape, or form. Folks, I think there's an important implication that verse 24 raises. Are there things that you and I have made into gods? Gods that we've made. Things we've made into a god. Now, a simple definition of a god would be anything that has veto power in your life. God alone should be the one who has veto power in our lives. I mean, the Lord's Prayer, I think, teaches that when we pray those words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, it's your will that should be done. And for us, Jesus came to make it possible so we could live lives according to God's will. We could be back reconciled to him, living in his freedom, obeying his will, living out his will. Micah heeds what Dan says in verse 25. He goes home. And Dan, the tribe, continues north. And they brutally kill all the people of Laish. And they claim it as their own. And you say, well, that kind of sounds okay, good, right. Because, like, they were supposed to, like, the people of Israel were supposed to go into the promised land and get rid of all the pagans, right? This is a good thing, Right? Look at verse 30. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, that's who the Levite is, 
and his sons were priests to the tribes of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So the Levite priest is a descendant of Moses. But instead of calling Dan to obey Israel's covenant with God, the covenant Moses helped set up, he and his sons and the people of Dan, they just keep disobeying. They keep wandering away from God. And you say, is that that big of a deal? I mean, let's face it. We, we began the service by saying, look, we're sinners. So like people sin. And God forgives, right? Like, we don't need to be worried about this, do we? Like, is this a big deal? Do I really have to obey God? Is there any impact when I don't? Well, think about this with me. Look at verse 30. It talks about the day of the captivity of the land. Most likely, that is a reference to 722 B.C., when the northern kingdom, which Dan was a part of, was taken into exile by the Assyrians. Folks, that is basically the end of the tribe of Dan. See, if you look at 1 Chronicles, you read the first 10 chapters, which is basically this long genealogies of all the tribes and families of Israel, you'll notice a tribe's not really there, the tribe of Dan. And then you read Revelation chapter 7, and it describes about there being 144,000 Hebrew believers, people who are going to serve God, and they're listed by tribe. Guess which tribe isn't listed? It's as if Dan's disobedience, walking away from God's freedom, wiped out Dan and brought him to an end. Folks, it sounds like obeying God is a constraint from God for our good, for our well-being. Let me go back to the start of the message and ask that question again. What does it mean to be free? Now, true freedom starts with coming to Jesus. I mean, when a person repents of their sin and trusts Jesus alone as the Savior, Jesus gives that person, gives you and me, freedom. Jesus offers us a word picture of that freedom in John chapter 7, verse 38, when he said this, whoever believes in me, as the, scriptures has said, as the scripture has said, out of my heart will flow rivers of living water. You know what, for, for those rivers to flow, for those rivers to be life-giving, rivers need banks. We need restrictions and constraints. The life-giving rivers of Jesus, for them to truly lead us to the experience of freedom, we need to be constrained by worshiping God God's way. We need to be constrained by obeying God in all things. Micah and Dan, they decided to do what was right in their own eyes and their outcome was not good. Please, please embrace the liberating constraints of God so that you can live in and enjoy the incredible freedom that he offers us in Christ. 
Would you pray with me? Father, I am grateful to you for your word and your truth. I'm grateful to you that you want us to have freedom. Father, philosophers don't know everything. But maybe they realize there can be a negative freedom because of things like judges. And maybe they realize there's a positive freedom because of the amazingness of what's offered us in Jesus. Lord, life is not lived in a philosophy lecture or in a philosophy book. It is lived, empowered by your spirit in our lives, wooing us and calling us to freedom. Lord, I pray we would learn from you your constraints. Allow us to float down the river of your freedom. May we receive from you what you offer us today. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. In Jesus' precious name we pray.